Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Before we launch into this week's show, this episode is coming to you on Monday the 16th of March and Kate and I just wanted to reassure you on a couple of things in light of what is going on with coronavirus. First of all, the podcast will continue to be published and second of all, that we are doing our best to try and catch up with the latest information and guidance and also experts that we can speak to to talk about any advice they've got for you that we will share on this feed. But we're speaking on Sunday, the day before the podcast goes out, just to kind of give you what we know, which is where Kate has the latest. Mm. I feel like I'm in a newsroom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, like anything, this is a rapidly changing situation and, and, you know, everything is changing from hour to hour, day to day. So at the moment, the best advice that's come from the HFEA is that women and couples should really contact their clinics if they're undergoing fertility treatment or who are newly pregnant, um, contact their clinic for advice. That's the best thing that you can do at the moment. Each clinic may have their own different continuity plans and advice that they're giving out at the moment, but if you're in any doubt or in any way concerned about how this might impact your fertility treatment over the coming months, contact your clinic and they will advise you. I mean, we don't want to scare and we don't want to speculate, but we're probably assuming that things are going to have to halt, aren't they, as far as mm. planned treatments? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, we don't know, but I think, I think that's a very high chance of things having to halt, unfortunately, for obvious reasons, because it could be that staff are needed to be put out to other areas to deal with the, this crisis. So who knows what's going to happen? I think it's a really uncertain time and I'm sure everyone is feeling really, really anxious about it. But all we can do is just keep in line with what the news is telling us, what information that we've got, and obviously we'll let everyone know as soon as we hear more. And I think when it comes to anxiety, I've been having various conversations with friends and people online because it does heighten all of our anxiety. It's such an unknown. We're all worried about those in our close family that are more vulnerable. Tips mm. in terms of just kind of keeping a bit calm through this because like we've been saying it's changing every day we just want to kind of reassure you that you know we'll do our best to support you any other advice you'd offer well I know for me I'm completely obsessed with the news at the moment and I think that's actually heightening my anxiety not necessarily about the virus itself but the impact on the country and you know the economic climate and all of that and my husband keeps telling me to stop looking at the news and I think that's probably really good advice if you're really worried about it just take a break it doesn't Mm. mean to say you have to stop completely but don't obsessively try and catch up with what's happening because like like I said earlier it is changing so rapidly and quickly so a little bit of self-care and if you need to switch off switch off and the sensible things like keeping those hands washed I mean my little one bless him his hands were red raw from all the washing we've been doing but we'd still need to be vigilant about it don't we and Mm. um in terms of the shopping because I know you had a little rant in the week about loo roll I mean, the shop shelves now, we're buying every possible type of cleaning product. And I know, I don't know if you've seen, there's like a group letter from all the supermarkets to say, please stop panic buying. So if that's one other thing to um, just add, you know, who are we to say to you what to do as far as your supermarket shop? But I think there has been an extremely heightened sense of shopping that we don't necessarily need. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is the time when we all need to be thinking about each other and, Mm. you know, do you really need to buy 100 toilet rolls? No, you don't. 
you really don't. I mean, I went shopping for pasta, just a, a bag of whole wheat pasta, and all the whole all the pasta's gone, including the whole wheat pasta. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gone. This is the time where the Brexit box that I made months ago, just in case, you know, that I've got sat in my shed has actually come into its own because I've got plenty of pasta I've not had to buy any more on a more supportive note what we just also want to highlight is that if you are having to self-isolate and you are finding that you're going to be at home more and you are wanting maybe to just know more about where you're at with your fertility then this could be an ample time to catch up on earlier episodes of the, of the podcast because there's loads there for you so you could indulge yourself in that make sure you subscribe because we are calling in the favors on our expert friends and asking if we can catch up with them. So we hope to share another episode, just a little tea break pod episode later in the week with any updates that we've managed to get our ears and hands on for you. But for now, enjoy today's show. We're going to launch straight into it. We just wanted to give you a little message from the pair of us to say that, you know, we're here, we're doing everything we can to keep channeling information to you and um, just keep your wits about you. And I guess stay safe. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. I've been uh, using my voice in my work for about 15 years now. I used to be on the radio. Now I'm podcasting and do a lot of voiceover work. Now, the Fertility Podcast has a whole host of episodes for you from adenomyosis to zero sperm. It's total A to Z of all sorts of things that affect you on your fertility journey. I'm mum to a little boy called Phoenix after having successful ICSI treatment, and that was my reason for starting the podcast. And I hope that if you found us, then you'll realise that you are not alone. This podcast is to help educate and empower you. I brought together as many experts and try to share as many of your stories as possible and I now have my wonderful co-host. I'm Kate Davis, a fertility nurse consultant and I'm adamant that we can all do so much better at understanding our fertility. I'm really passionate about teaching you to take ownership of your fertility, teaching you practical steps, emotional coping strategies and lifestyle changes that you can make to hopefully optimise your chances of conceiving. Now you know who we are, all you need to do is enjoy the show. So welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Kate and I have been very busy of late. We've been making lots of podcast content because there's so much that we want to cover. And I think one of the things that we're really keen to make sure that we do is really highlight the different ways that you can be supported in this space. We talk about the Instagram community, we we try to talk to different experts and obviously the podcast itself is hopefully a support line for you. But what we're finding really interesting is the, the, the different levels and the different people and that's what our next guest is going to be talking about. We're going to be talking to a lady called Julianne Buteleb, who is a perinatal psychologist and she's on Instagram as Parenthood in Mind and she's somebody that I'd found. Had you found her, Kate? Had you seen her on, on Instagram no, before? Um, no, And I didn't even know there were perinatal psychologists. So I have I feel like I've really learned something today. And I'm thinking of all the women, all my patients that I can actually refer to her because, yeah, no, I had no idea. Well, you're about to hear a, a really interesting conversation that we had with Julianne. There's a lot of information in here. And if you're on the move, don't worry about taking notes because we're, we're going to put lots of references in the show notes. But do check her out, especially if you're at a place where maybe you're newly pregnant and, and you're struggling or, or if you're just embarking on 
treatment and struggling there's there's a fear that we we talk about a lot the fear of getting pregnant being pregnant and then giving birth all linked to whatever might have gone on with you before that Julianne explains um, amazingly so uh, we know you'll find this interesting and like I say make sure you listen to the end to get access to all the show notes I'm 17 years qualified as a psychologist and I started in the NHS in the heady days where um, the Labour government were wanting to think preemptively about families and so I was one of the first psychologists um, in, in London in the country actually to set up uh, short start services, specialist services for parents and parents to be and that was in Newham in the East End of London. I used to work in Newham. Did you? Hmm, must have been. Yes. How, when was so I there? 2003. I started there 2001. 2003, I would have been psychology okay. for a short Yeah, I was, I was there before then. Ah. That would have been too weird. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me. I often find these sort of path crossings. But essentially, as you'll know, Anthony, um, a lot of the people who are having babies or attempting to have babies indeed it's very unfortunate for losing babies often came with a history of trauma some of it was very obvious they were immigrants asylum seekers uh, women coming through with past histories of trauma all sorts of sexual trauma um, and then there were others that were less obvious in terms of people coming through with recurrent miscarriages or wanting to have a baby and, and not conceiving that was one strand of the first sense of interest I had around um, those reproductive brains um, is the, the, the name I give to it anyway. The other thing was that sort of around the 2000s um, we started to talk in the perinatal psychology world so that's what I am, I'm, I'm a specialist perinatal psychologist which means that you're working with people from conception up to one year post birth. Now what I didn't like about it was that of course as we all know, journey to parenthood starts way before <laughs> you actually conceive a baby. And I, of course, have my own personal history of that. And there were times where it was quite excruciating to be trying to conceive at the same time as putting yourself forward as an expert perinatal psychologist. So that was a, another strand of my interest. But the other really strong strand of the 2000s was actually that we started to talk about tocophobia. And up until then, all we really talked about was postnatal depression. And at that time, I guess what I was really interested in was, you know, we're looking at and assessing women, as it was predominantly then, coming through and shining the light post-birth. But actually, what was happening during the birth and what was happening pre-birth? And those things rarely got looked at. So around, I think it was 2000, it was um, psychiatrist Christina Hulfberg and Ian Brockington, who you may have come across, they started to talk about the morbid fear of giving birth that they were starting to see in, in pregnant women. So fusing all those things together, I became very interested in what's loosely termed birth-related trauma. But my passion in the last 10 years has been looking at where the journey starts. And actually, that's where a lot of the trauma, which I call fertility trauma, gets missed by almost everybody in services. So when it comes to, you, you mentioned tocophobia, and I want to 
explore mm. that a little bit more. When it comes to the people that you get to work with, yeah. do you get to work with them early enough? Yeah, absolutely. So I came out of the NHS probably four years ago. And part of my reason for doing so was that I wanted to work more preemptively. Unfortunately, the original aim of Sure Start was to work with people, you know, that were actually planning to have a baby. And again, the reason that we were often doing that was these were women with well-known mental health issues, more on the severe and enduring end, such as um, maybe bipolar disorder or a known history of anxiety and depression. And so we were often working with them in a pre-contemplative mode, helping them plan the pregnancy. Um, in a way that was going to help around medication and the like. So I deliberately, when I came out of the NHS and set up the parenthood and mind practice, wanted to include that pre-contemplation stage in the name of the practice because what we know, and actually what I guess a lot of the work that comes through now, are couples wanting to settle down, have a baby, and they come through in different stages. Some know that there are health issues or that there are genetic issues in either one of the couple and they want to explore what that means for them as a couple so they'll often come have a few sessions thinking about whether or not they should try to conceive and um, you know using assisted reproductive techniques particularly pgs and you know, thinking about how they could family that way others will have already been trying unfortunately a while and are coming slowly to the the realisation that they may need help and support. And again, they often find me particularly through Vika. I've also done quite a lot of training events and, and lectures through Vika and also through my social media. So they might seek me out to think through actually starting treatment. Others then are coming through, unfortunately, they've already had a few rounds of treatment and there's been maybe reproductive injury such as pregnancy or the loss of a fallopian tube. Or indeed, they may have then discovered, I'll just call it the, the shock of the new, because even, as we know, through fertility treatment, what is often discovered is that there may be other underlying reproductive issues that the couple may not even be aware of. And so then they're often at the fork in the road, as I call it, where they may be contemplating donor conception or surrogacy or indeed adoption for the aid of complete their family. So they're really coming into our practice at any point along that sort of pre-contemplative or trying to conceive stage. So just kind of go back to mm. topophobia. I was yeah. just really interested to ask you whether you see women who have previously experienced a miscarriage and that they have fear of this happening again, particularly from a physical perspective, because that's what I hear a lot from my patients yeah. is that so terrified they're really scared yeah. that they're going to miscarry again and it's going to be another very traumatic experience absolutely um and i suppose the thing is that tocophobia we sort of divide into two one is primary tocophobia and secondary tocophobia so primary tocophobia might be somebody who's never actually conceived or been pregnant but they carry stories either from their peers or indeed from transgenerational stories of you know, death and pregnancy or difficulties falling pregnant and they've absorbed that and somehow that, that gets into their what we call fear of birth and we now have a bob scale a fear of birth scale where we can measure those sorts of beliefs and ideas around somebody who might have primary tocophobia one of the strong beliefs there might be that their body isn't good enough 
carry the baby. And then often that might come with a history of eating disorders or difficulties around menstruation or other transitions in life, but it's sort of primary tocophobia. With secondary tocophobia, what we're often seeing is, unfortunately, history of reproductive trauma. So it might be a termination that went badly wrong, or it might indeed be a history of recurrent miscarriages. And what's really helpful is, I don't know if you know the recent research by Jessica Farron, yeah, we spoke to her just the yes. other day. Fantastic. Oh, my yes. God. Yes. I know. I'm very excited <laughs> to share that. Woo. We get well, around. <laughs> it's, I'm telling you, I am impressed. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about that is, of course, her study now lends credence to the likes of me standing in the corner banging the drum saying, by the way, do you know that people can actually be traumatised before they even come into, you know, antenatal contact with provider services? And, of course, her wonderful research shows that ectopic pregnancy and recurrent miscarriage, you know, one in six people have PTSD symptoms. So I think that uh, captures some of what I call reproductive trauma or secondary tocophobia might be about. But I think what it doesn't yet capture and what I'm really passionate about putting out there is, of course, we know that before even somebody conceives, um, if they've taken the ART route, is that they will have already have had potentially uh, corrective surgery done. They may already have had um, reproductive injury, as I say, you know, OHSS or the loss of a fallopian tube. They may already have trauma that they're carrying in their body. And of course, part of what tocophobia is actually about in terms of a fear of giving birth is a fear of what our bodies are actually capable of. And many of the, the women and, and couples I see presenting with tocophobia, secondary tocophobia, are those who, at least to their minds, feel that this is further proof that their bodies aren't good enough. You know, not only have they failed to conceive, inverted commas, naturally, now they can't carry the baby. And I think there's often a moment of panic for those couples who've been trying to conceive for a while when they actually fall pregnant. I've just seen a couple few days ago and and that was very much the terror oh gosh how is my body going to carry this really precious embryo baby and that would fall into the realm of secondary tocophobia where obviously there's already been two miscarriages unfortunately and I don't think that underlying bit of difficulty of thinking of your body as being good enough to carry a baby really gets thought about within tocophobia as it presents in, in fertility contexts. I'm really I'm really pleased to hear you talk about the couple, because um, you obviously yeah. work with, with both parties if, if it is yeah. a couple that are, are are having these issues. And it'd be good to just understand a bit more about how you then mm. work with them. Because I was with some ladies at the weekend and, and mm. bizarrely in a group of about I think I was in a I went to like a lovely yoga retreat and in a group mm. of about twenty odd ladies I spoke to four who had all yeah. had to terminate due to medical reasons. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was like a smidgen of the people that were there. And one of the ladies was telling me how she's about to have a 20-week scan. Mm. She'd had, uh, I don't know how many rounds, I can't remember, before this successful mm. round. And I was asking how she was feeling. And she was, she was so cautious. And it was heartbreaking. And I know mm. so often from the, from the numerous people that you know, we engage with with the podcast that even once pregnant, we're just yeah. not able 
to then be in that pregnancy because we're so afraid and I'm 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 keen to hear how you work with people and, and I suppose how long for it is it is it until they they have their babies yeah yeah I mean the beauty of the of the practice and, and the service that we offer is that absolutely we, we would be able to work with a couple all the way through we also I mean I think one of the key parts of this is advocating for the couple because again coming back to the sense of trauma often people feel hopeless and helpless they feel a huge wrench from the clinic you know, when they're being passed over into mainstream services because they feel that there isn't really an understanding of what they've been through to conceive. And I think there's lots of different ways that that gets dismissed. A lot of my work around birth trauma, I do with Make Birth Better. And I did a takeover with them in November last year alongside um, somebody who'd, who'd also gone through um, multiple ART treatments to, to get pregnant. And um, we had a huge response because part of what they felt often happened in mainstream services that they would often get triggered by people saying, so when did you fall pregnant? Or, you know, people being very obstructive around, let's say, somebody wanting to have an elective caesarean and that not being allowed, inverted commas, and then us, I guess, you know, whoever's working with that couple saying, well, we can advocate for you. Mm. There are reasons why this is, you know, particularly important in your case. And I think whether it's a male or a female partner, I think what's really important is that they also get held and supported because I think invariably what happens is it's actually the person who is, you know, the parent co-partner to be, they get left out and they often get put in the position where they have to advocate, often not knowing what it is exactly that they need. I think what's really interesting for me over the longer term as well is we think of the nature of the fertility process and they invariably separate couples out. So, you know, the woman is taken into this appointment to do this and yeah. the man is put over here to do that. And what we see a lot of is what we call iatrogenic impact of the actual treatment on the couple. I did a, a talk two years ago at the Beaker Conference and I called it unconscious uncoupling. <laughs> what happens to couples during fertility treatment? And I think it's that way in which couples often are together, sort of alone together. They get on with being who they are, separate of the couple. And so often, typically, you know, work might be a factor in that. Or, you know, they don't attend appointments together because they're so terrified. I'm working with a couple at the moment where she's berating him for not attending the scans. And he's saying, I can't. So we've now come to the agreement that he will attend the scan. For now, he's going to wait outside because he is terrified of collapsing actually physically collapsing because that's what happened to him last time unfortunately when they had a miscarriage of 20 weeks wow mm-hmm. you never think of the guys in that no, way we leave them out an awful mm-hmm. lot and i think we do too much if you think of what we're trying to do we're trying to create a family mm-hmm. and you know invariably what I, I see is then that the couple have this baby but they're carrying these traumatic wounds from actually you know the journey to becoming parents so I'm really passionate about supporting couples all the way through and recognising that actually um, men or female partners may also be traumatised and they need our support and help too. On, um, on that note, I don't know whether you've seen a, a research study back in 2018 which was looking yeah. into the prevalence of psychiatric disorders in men mm. and women up yeah. to five years after undergoing assistive reproductive technology. Yeah. What 
what are your thoughts on that if you have if you have any <laughs> i do i i mixed to be honest so i, I mm. think the study is brilliant and we need more of this longitudinal study but look you know louise brown was born what 40 odd years ago so you know this is the sort of research that we need to have coming through now these longitudinal research studies i think what's interesting is that yes we know that in couples who are able to so again, what differentiates the couple that can come through the trauma, if you like, of infertility, infertility treatment versus the ones that don't? And some of the key characteristics, and I guess the study was fantastic in showing that some of the, the impact of fertility treatment does lessen over the longer term life of the couple and the parents, regardless of whether they've conceived or not, which is good news, of course. But I think they're looking at diagnostic categories and of course what we know is that people continue to be affected they may not meet the criteria of mm. an actual diagnosis yeah and they yeah. often fly under the radar so what we do know in the longer term is that the couples who tend to make it out alive if you like are often those who are able to talk about conflict who can you know communicate about their needs with each other who think about what they need outside the couple and I think that's the other thing that's really important often couples feel because of this the hidden sort of stigma nature of infertility they often expect themselves to be able to look to each other for support the couples that do best and also the parents that do best are the ones that have social support that can look to the tribe as I call it for support all the way across the coming to you know parenthood journey the study doesn't look at the welfare of the couple i guess it doesn't measure that mm. um but i think it's a start i think it's really yeah. really important because there are contradictory studies there is another study in denmark done around the same time a bit earlier actually that shows couples who are um who don't conceive um through fertility treatment are three times more likely to divorce or separate couples who did conceive and that was a longitudinal study done in Denmark so I think what we need yeah, to know now is yeah what do couples need and I think what I'm really happy about is that clinics are starting to realize that couples have feelings and they do need to be protected I am also very passionate about being honest with couples the reality is that you know we're still at 25 to 26 percent of a live birth weight fertility treatment and I think we have to be honest with couples about you know how grueling treatment can be what the possible impacts are on the couple and the ways in which they can best protect their relationship as they go through months and potentially years as we know of, of attempting to become parents I think that sort of health message needs to be put out there and what about considering what you just said and the, the divorce stats if the couple mm. have decided to stop that they've been through unsuccessful treatments, the support continues, does it? Or it should continue, shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think what's really important is that the implications of of treatment can be far-reaching. One of the things I'm finding out is quite interesting is women coming up to menopause, and that can be women who have conceived through ART, but also women who haven't, and that somehow that's a re-triggering Mm. of trauma or loss or bereavement that may have happened and so the reality is is that you know these couples need 
support all the way through becoming parents, if they're, even if they're successful, and particularly if they're not. And a few months ago, Natalie and I interviewed, well, we did quite a lot of interviews actually surrounding this topic of can make a decision to stop yeah. trying to conceive. And we interviewed Kate Kaufman, and yeah. she said that what she found was one of her major triggers and also those of her friends was when her, her friends around her became grandparents and yes. she knows that she won't ever become a grandparent. Yeah. So it's never-ending. It doesn't stop, does it? That those, those triggers are going to continue throughout a woman's lifespan at various different points. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, again, when you say to me, you know, that the couples who do well, and, and again, I know this might sound very airy-fairy for those who are having to contemplate not being parents, but I talk about the reproductive story. And again, that's a concept from Martha Diamond and Janet Chaff, they're reproductive psychiatrists in the States. They've written a fabulous book called Reproductive Trauma. And they talk about the fact that we all come to, you know, wanting to be a parent with a story. You know, we've been playing with dolls and teddies since we were young. And it's until somebody says, oh, actually, that's not going to be the story for you. We, we don't realise that, you know, this mightn't be a, go a given and there are shattered assumptions. The couples I often work with, we, we have to come back to that story. What were the hopes and dreams? What were the ideas around yourself that you thought would be realised? And how can the story be rewritten? And that, that might be a story for him and for her, and then the couple's story together. So it's not going to be, inverted commas, the happy ever after of having one's own children. What is it going to look like? And invariably, um, a lot of couples that I work with around that, the reproductive story, they find a place to become creative again. And I think there's some wonderful examples of, you know, the founder of the Fertility Fest, for example. What I love about the Fertility Fest is that often there are people coming through there who have regenerated, if you like, in other ways that sometimes don't involve children, but others that do. I worked with a, a woman just recently and she's decided to become a mentor to sort of children in um, Taiwan or Thailand, wherever she'd originally come from. And she was reinvesting that sort of maternal love and care that she had wanted to invest in her own child back into a story that was going to give her meaning, because I think that's an incredibly important part of what we all have to do, you know, whether or not we have the desired children that we want or, or don't, that we have to rewrite the reproductive story and find meaning. Yeah. We'll put links to um, Jessica Hepburn, who you were referring to there. Kate and I yes, have, a, have a very fond place, a very fond place in our hearts for Jessica. And we, we saw Jessie just recently. She, she, by the time this podcast goes out, will possibly be on her ascent to Everest. Everest. Which is her, uh, I was reading about that. Yeah. She's an amazing. She woman. is. She's she such is. an inspiration. Um, I just want to go back a little step to the use of the word trauma because yeah. in the conversations that we've had with the podcast we've talked about grief and we've talked about allowing yourself to grieve whether it's for a, a miscarriage for baby loss or for the loss of having natural conception whether it's the the realization and the acceptance of living a life childless these different stages mm. of the grieving process yeah. but I've never actually talked about this whole journey and the issues that we have to overcome and use the word trauma. And you talked about reproductive trauma and you also yeah. on your social media, you talk about fertility trauma. Yeah. And these are strong words, grief and trauma yeah. that we're associating with this topic. And I think it's a really interesting narrative that if people are 
talking about this earlier on, it's it's that allowing themselves to, well, it's almost highlighting the severity of what people are dealing with when there's still this assumption that, uh, annoyingly, sometimes there's this assumption that having fertility treatment is a lifestyle choice. And then when yeah. you when you've got these the this language in the same conversation, hopefully, do you think it starts to help realize people realize the severity of what others are going through? I really hope so. And you know, I I, I hear what you're saying totally. And one of the difficulties of using the word is, of course, that it is often overused. But I am going to use it, and I am going to continue to highlight that this is trauma. So if you, if you look at the actual definition. Of trauma. So I'm talking about, we psychologists love to have our big, thick books, but we have this big, thick book called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual, and it gets updated every few years. Anyway, the latest version of that, DSM-5, defines trauma as actual or threatened death or serious injury, including threats to one's physical integrity of self, partner or family member. Well, that is that is completely fertility trauma, isn't it? (laughs) There you go. Yeah, one hundred percent fertility trauma. So the thing about it that's really important this year, actually last year, is that they added the word perceived. So if you add in the word perceived, Mm. perceived or actual threatened death or serious injury, loss or threat to one's physical integrity, that for me is fertility trauma in a nutshell. Because what you have is shift of identity into being well into being you know patient you have you know whoever has gone through fertility treatment will know the loss of physical integrity the ways in which your body you know becomes not your own anymore the ways in which you have to become accustomed to you know uh, having regular injections or even involving your partner in doing that the ways in which that you do have to actually witness and experience the actual death of our long-four babies. And I think what's missing from this as well, and, and you guys will know this as well, I often work with couples where they, you know, they bring me little images of those end babies. They're real. And attachment starts then. Mm. The idea that attachment starts sort of at 20 weeks, you know, antenatal, is, is not the truth. And many of us go through fertility treatment. And indeed, I think the loss of the capacity to have a baby is also part of what's traumatic. Because up until now, many people don't actually know that this is, you know, something that they cannot have. I think if you add to this, again, if you look at the actual symptomatology of trauma, and and you tell me whether this fits again with uh, what people experience both with infertility and fertility treatment. So there's three clusters of symptoms. The first one is you experience so that involves flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, obsessive ideas. There's one cluster. The next one is what we call avoidance. So essentially, we will avoid ideas, triggers, anything that reminds us of the traumatic injury or event. And the third cluster is what we call hyperarousal, so that you have panic, exaggerated startle reflex. You may have difficulty concentrating, you're hypervigilant. And the fourth bit of that is alterations in cognitions and beliefs about ourselves and the world. Now, we all know that these are typical things that people will talk to us about. I, mean, I, I cannot go to my sister's baby's christening. That's a trigger. Mm-hmm. That sense of your heart beating, of your mind racing, of a sense of feeling out of control, 
cuts hyperarousal. So over and over again, what I'm passionate about saying to people is this isn't just depression. This isn't just anxiety or stress. This is a certain part of your brain going into fight or flight mode. And I think this is tremendously reassuring for people who often experience themselves in ways that they cannot understand. I worked recently with a woman who said to me that, you know, a friend, a very good friend, work friend came in and they changed the date of the sort of post-baby lunch and they'd got the balloons, she'd done all of that, she was when he bought the present, got the balloons, everything ready, and they slightly changed the time. She wasn't ready for the person coming in and she started coming into the office and she said, I had a full-on panic attack mm. to run into the toilet. Mm. And the sense of shame, the sense of, why is this happening to me? I actually ran out of the office to get away from her. She must have seen me. To be, for me to be able to explain to her, this is your body in a trauma reaction. This is your body and brain saying, oh no, I need to run. It's fight, flight. And mm -hmm. it's incredibly reassuring for people to know that this is not in their control. This is something that's happening in order to protect them. And what then might be really important is that you're able to give them coping strategies to deal with those sorts of triggers panic attacks, nightmares, etc. as they go through treatment. Yeah. And those coping strategies are exactly what we want to be able to signpost people to with the podcast. So Julianne, we'll put yeah. links to your, your website and your Instagram because yes. I know that you're 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 in the TTC Instagram community. What what do you think yeah. of it, how it's manifested itself? Because it's not something that was around when I launched this podcast five no. years ago. And yeah. it's kind of how Kate and I have found so many people and so many guests and we're constantly kind of surprised by what it does for people how do you feel about it before we say bye I absolutely love it again my experience was those chat rooms that you sort of lurked mm. on to the different clinics you know the fertility friends <laughs> chat yeah. rooms um I, I think it's fantastic I, I think what I love about it is that there is also a maturity in a lot of the, the forums as well where my passion is trying to break the story of isolation is trying to reach out to people and, and again I, we have to play it carefully because invariably you know I may then put something on about being a mother or what happens to partners when they become parents etc etc so it's trying to do it mindfully but yeah. I think part of what a lot of people suffer from when they are going through infertility and fertility treatment is the sense of being left outside of you know the wider groups I think it's really important talk about finding your tribe in terms of parenthood and for some of us it takes a village to raise a child but for others it takes a village to actually conceive a child yeah, and it's right. making that village friendly and supportive and accessible I'm absolutely passionate about that. Thank you so much Julianne it's been fascinating and there's lots of references there that I'm going to get you to make sure you've, you've that, that, that definition if you can pop us through mm, that'd be great to add in the show notes that. yeah and I'll give you some more information on the Fat. symptomatology and strategies to cope great we'll put it all yes. in the show notes thank you so much for your time it's been really lovely thank chatting you to you thank, thank you. you brilliant all the best right so you've learnt the meaning of tocophobia yes I have <laughs> Shall I say what it is? Because we asked Julianne after we finished, I really wanted to know what tocophobia, we knew what tocophobia was because she'd explained it so well, but I wanted to understand where the toco bit came from. And tokos is Greek for giving birth. 
So there we go. I really felt that I'd learned something. I was fascinated by that. I couldn't stop looking at the word tokophobia as we were chatting to her. Because it's spelled T-O-K-O. So it, again, mm. you wouldn't necessarily assume straight away from the spelling it was Greek, or would you? No. But we'll no, put a link no. to that in the show notes as well. And like we said at the start, there's different references that um, Julianne made to organisations that she's worked with. We talked about some studies and she also gave a, a term... Um, that I want to make sure we've got included where she talks about loss and perceived and actual loss and also there was a book that she mentioned about reproductive trauma so all of that will be in the show notes make Mm. sure you do go and check them out and um, if there's anything in here that has raised any more questions Kate and I are answering your questions in our tea break pods so please do email info at the fertilitypodcast.com we're making specific episodes that are shorter episodes where we're going to be answering your question and no question is a silly question is it never not at all and I think as well in this one if you've got any questions for Juliana herself let us know and we can always put them to her and also we'll talk about them then in the teapot Meanwhile, make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also rate and review and share it. And if you want to follow us on our socials, I'm at Fertility Poddy on all the platforms. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. Thanks for listening as always. And until the next time, 